Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father God, we thank you that our sinless Savior died and that you were so pleased with that sacrifice that our sins could be pardoned. And not just pardoned in such a way that we would be able to walk away neutral to You, but pardoned in such a way that our hearts are made completely new and we are brought into full relationship with You. So that we can call You Father. And we can receive the inheritance as sons and daughters. God, we thank You that it is not enough that we would be taken from hostile to neutral, but that You would take us from hostile towards You in our flesh to children of You in the Spirit. God, we we pray now that You would open our hearts to Your Word. Find out what it was that David has to teach us as people who need to repent. Let us learn from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every year I trick a group of guys from the church into following me into the wilderness. And every year we start with the same problem. We're in a parking lot, we're at a boat ramp. We're somewhere, we're loading up all our gear, and we look blankly at a map, we try and orient it to true north, and we figure out where are we going to go with a map and a vague idea of north. And there comes a moment in orienteering when your eyes adjust to the map and to the scale of the map and the scale of the surroundings, and it becomes as though when you look at the map, you're really looking at the woods and the two become one. Go ahead and pull this up, Kyle. And so you you can see a map, and that picture is taken from one of the red dots pictured on that map. I'm sure all of you can perfectly guess which one, right? There comes a point where we... We can look at the map and then looking around, we're like, oh yeah, that's that campsite, that's that island, that's that peak, and this is the two miles of water between me and all that stuff. And it just makes sense. Because the map tells us what's around us. And then we, oh, this is what's around us, this is what's around us. It all comes together. And in our, in our walk, in our faith, this kind of happens. We, we read something in Scripture, and then we experience it, and it's like, oh, this is that. Several years ago, I was with a group of people and we were praying. And it was, it was, the, the prayer was really directed around a, a specific issue of spiritual warfare. And we were praying and praying and praying. And someone in the group opened Scripture and started reading a passage that, that pertained to the issue we were praying about. And it was resolved. The issue went away. And, and I will never know this side of heaven exactly 
all that took place, if it was the, the praying, it, it, it had to be a culmination of all of it. But the scripture was read, and the problem went away, and I could, I could almost hear the Spirit in my ears as I was contemplating all this. I could almost hear the Spirit tell me, I told you that the Word of God is the sword. Of course. When the Word of God is used, things happen. And as we, as we grow in our faith, we see times where we read something on Scripture and then we see it lived out in front of us. We see pride leading to downfall. And, and hopefully what we see a lot of is sin being confessed and forgiveness being given. And we see this transaction of repentance and grace in our own lives and in the lives of others. And, and so often we marvel at it as we appropriately should. And so often we also look at it and see, well, of course it's what happened. It's what the Bible told us would happen. We've spent the last month in Psalm 51 talking about sin. What an uplifting time it was, right? As Dave told you how sinful and terrible you are. And the only place to go is God. And we talked about only God can give us a new heart. Only God can bring about these things. Psalm 51 We, uh, we read David's prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. And he confesses his sin. He, he talks about how sinful he was, how long he's been sinful. He comes to God. He, he asks for a new heart. He comes in brokenness. And I hope that over those four weeks, we as a church have, have been renewed or, or maybe even learned some new things about what it means to come to God and the value of that saying, I'm a sinner repenting of sin. And last week, Dave finished out Psalm 51 where David says, I will go and I will instruct people in your ways, God. I will teach sinners about this. Well, Psalm 32 is both David's rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin and David's teaching about his experience in going to God and asking for forgiveness. And since for David, life is a musical, he teaches by way of song. And so Psalm 32 is this instructional song that teaches us about God's forgiveness and God's guidance. And these are two things we need. We need forgiveness and guidance. If we don't have forgiveness, things will never be made right. If we don't have guidance, we'll never learn. So today we're looking at the first of these two. We're looking at God's forgiveness. And in these, in these first five verses of Psalm 32, we have some lessons about forgiveness. Let's read. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So what does our musical teacher have to tell us? The first thing we learn about forgiveness from God is that it's a blessing. In David's teaching of forgiveness, he starts with the result. This is kind of infomercial-esque of David, right? You know, you, you tune into an infomercial. I know all of you, you can't wait for whatever's on the main channels on Saturday afternoon that's not sports because it's always infomercials. We DVR them. Because we need to learn what life could be like if we had a vacuum that did the laundry, dishes, and babysat our kids for us. And a lot of times, these infomercials, they focus around how great your life is because this one thing is added to it. It's the can opener of your dreams. You need it. This one thing will make your life complete. Well, David's infomercial of sorts doesn't talk about what was added to his life. It celebrates what was taken out of his life. Seems kind of backwards. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The man who the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is celebrating this new lacking in his life. His transgression is forgiven and his sin is covered. And his sin being covered. This is atonement imagery. In the the Old Testament, atonement is, is one where here's your sin, here's the sacrifice. So when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin, He sees the sacrifice that has covered it. It's a concealment of your sin. In the New Testament, what we have in Hebrews is that the blood of bulls was never able to take away sin, right? And so what happened? Jesus died so that at one point, there was a sacrifice for all time that all sin could be removed. And so while David is praying, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven and covered up, this covered up, this atonement language for us, takes it one step further it's it's not only covered up it's gone so that there's nothing under the atonement of christ there's no more sin there anymore the lord counts no iniquity in the spirit there's no deceit and it's not that that god has been tricked into thinking that all of a sudden we're upstanding truthful citizens but that the deceit has been removed You know, there's, there's certain psalms that become famous over time for us, right? You know, Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of living water. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 51, created me a new heart. And one of those psalms 
is Psalm 103. Because we learn what happens to our sin. It's separated from us. And not just taken out of reach, it's gone. It's separated as far as what? The east is from the west. Growing up, I had a pastor, Denny Breckbill, and he loved this verse, and he would talk about it all the time. It's one of the only things I remember from being a kid in his preaching. But he'd say, isn't it great that God doesn't separate our sin from the north to the south? Because there's a point where you go south so long that the only direction you can go is north. There's only 23,000 miles separating the north and the south. But the east and the west, you can never go east so long that you start going west. They're separated. And they'll never come into contact again. That God removes our sin. David is celebrating not what's been added to his life, but what's been taken away. And this, there's an escalation in what he, he describes here. From forgiveness to covering to complete removal and newness. In in whose spirit there's found no deceit. David certainly had, had a lot of deceit leading up to his prayer in Psalm 51. He tricked, he tried to trick Uriah into coming back to cover up a pregnancy. And then he tricked Uriah into dying in battle. There was a lot of deceit. But now that his sin has been forgiven by God, God can no longer find that deceit. In Psalm 18, a number of years ago I was praying Psalm 18, and I was feeling particularly sinful that day. You guys have days like that where you just... You feel worse than you do other days. Maybe it's just me. I was, I, was, I was sitting and reading. Verse 23 came up. So I, I was blameless before Him and I kept myself from guilt. And I'm thinking, oh, that's not me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. And I'm feeling particularly unrighteous at this point. And then it gets to verse 25. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. I'm thinking, okay, there's times I show mercy, so God's merciful with me. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. I'm feeling completely separated from the title of blameless at this point. And then it says, with the purified you show yourself pure. And that really stuck out to me. Because for something to be purified means at one time it was filthy. You don't take something pure and completely without blemish and then purify it. That would be pointless. But you take something that's filthy and disgusting and you purify it and make it useful. And I couldn't at that moment relate to the title of blameless. But I found myself very much being able to relate to the title of purified. Because I knew that I had this filth within me. Too often, I I feel like my sin goes out in front of me. So I don't feel blameless, but I can feel very purified. And David here in Psalm 32 isn't, isn't praying to someone who's blameless. He's not saying, blessed is the one in whom there's no deceit because they've never sinned. 
He's saying, blessed is the one in whom there's no deceit because God has purified them. And we, we're, this is such an appropriate week to have the Lord's table set before us. Because the Lord's table is here, not because, not calling out to those who are perfect, but calling out to those who need to be purified or who have been purified, saying there's a means to having the deceit and the sin removed from you. And it's Jesus' blood, His sacrifice and His resurrection. It cries out that with God, a new heart is possible. We don't need to scrub away our own sins. God does that by His holiness, love, justice, mercy, and grace. He makes us new. He covers our sin. He stops counting our rebellion. And He changes our hearts. There's a lot of blessing in this. So David starts with the result. And as we get ready to transition to the second lesson, note the contrast between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4. In 1 and 2, it's all blessing. Blessed is the man whose sin has been taken away from him. And then in verses 3 and 4, it's like, oh man, but the guy who waits in his sin, who tries to take care of himself, it's agony. We have agony. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Sometimes it's hard for us as believers living in a post-cross world, living in the New Covenant, it's hard for us to know how to relate to the Old Testament characters. And so we have filters. How is it fulfilled in the cross? What were their current circumstances? How are they in relation to the law? So let's look at David. He worshiped God according to the law. We know that David had the Holy Spirit on him. Because when he played his lyre, the evil spirits would leave from Saul. We know that David had an anointing from God. And while we would not call, we would not necessarily call David a, a Christian by the standards we use today, because Christ had not yet been incarnated and died on the cross, we could easily and appropriately call David a follower of God, and one who is in relationship with God, a covenant follower of God. And we could use very similar terms. We use Christian, but as a Christian. We're, follow, we're, we're, we're in the new covenant of God. We're following God through Jesus. And so there's a, a deep level on which we relate to David. That being said, there's a significant dissonance that happens in the heart when a follower of God acts in disobedience. I'll say that again. There's a significant dissonance that happens in the heart when a follower of God walks in disobedience. And that dissonance is not felt only in the soul, but it overflows to the mind and to the body. And this is what 3 and 4 are describing. My bones wasted away. I was through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as though I'd been out in the sun all day long with no relief. 
These are the metaphors that David chooses. He doesn't say, I had inner turmoil. He, he talks about the dissonance of not walking with God as taking a toll on his body. I in no way want to communicate that walking in sin always leads to physical illness, and physical illness is due to sin. There are germs. There's a thing called the flu. It's real. We can get vaccinations for it that sometimes work. It's like rolling the dice, right? What I am saying is that we, when we willingly deny walking with God, when we willingly deny repenting of our sins, when we say, God, I got it, I'm on it, I don't need your help, that there is a stress, a heavenly stress that's laid upon us that will, at times, manifest itself in our body. We lose sleep. We get high anxiety. We get high blood pressure. We have new aches and pains. And David says that when he kept silent, when he tried to go about it his own way, all of these things manifested. Over the years, I've had several home improvement woes. But screen doors have their own particular category. That's my house. That's a screen door I purchased that I felt was going really, really well. Until I put it on. We got a lot of recommendations on how to fix this. One, one friend of mine who was particularly helpful suggested buying a really big can of great stuff. You know, that expanding foam and just... Menards graciously accepted our return. The tape measure was used a little more efficiently the second time. This was the third time we've done a screen door. The second time was by far the smoothest. This one wasn't so bad. The first was the worst. I, uh, I got out the little template for drilling the holes for the handle. I didn't line it up right. So I had holes that looked like this, right? They didn't meet up. So I couldn't get the door in. And all day long, I tried different size drill bits. I tried... Some of you are about to lose a lot of respect for me. I was like, all right, if I just, I could grind it out with the drill bit. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I was insane that day. And the more I tried, the worse it became. The holes were going larger in opposite directions, and I thought... I was ready to scrap the door and go buy a new one and pay someone. Because I thought, even when I get these handles on, you're going to see holes right through the door. This is terrible. I don't know what to do. And I pined away at it, and the afternoon kept going. And the more I did, the worse it got. And isn't that how we feel in our sin? That we feel conviction. We're like, I need to confess this. And it's not God I'm worried about confessing to, it's the people around me. 
And the moment I do that, they're going to reject me. All those relationships are done. And so we start thinking of ways of, like, how can I justify this? How can I minimize this? How can I put a spin on this so I'm better? And we spend all this time pining away. And maybe we even try to spin our sin so it's more palpable. And all the while we do that, all we do is make it worse. All we do is create a deeper aching in our bones. And we think, I know God has solutions for my sin, but I think, you know, no offense to God, but I've sinned more, so I know what to do. I have more experience in this category. And it sounds ridiculous right now. But too often, either we do this or we watch others do this. Where we try to spin our sin, we try to fix our sin. On our own. Apart from Jesus. And something needs to change soon. And in order to find out what needs to change soon, I think we're best to look at David's experience. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. One of the best resources I have in my life is friends who have been there and done that before me that I can call and say, how do you fix this? What do you do about X? I'm experiencing this problem. I have this dilemma and seeking out the wisdom of others. And, and, and all of us are really, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. We have so much of our theology has been worked out by generations before us. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. Some of us are where we are financially because of the legacy that was set up before us by parents or grandparents. And we have that experience. Here in verse 5, David sums up Psalm 51. I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover it. I confessed it. You forgave it. David owns his sin. He acknowledges it. He does not cover it up. David does not try to minimize it. He does not try to avoid it. He doesn't, he doesn't say, yeah, I mean, that was bad, but have you seen the Philistines? He doesn't condemn Bathsheba. He doesn't condemn Uriah. He doesn't get mad at Nathan for pointing it out. Well, Nathan, had you never told me I'd sinned, this wouldn't be a problem. He acknowledges it. He is honest with his sin. He doesn't hide it. Here it is. Here's what I did. Here's who I am. Here's what I need. And what I need is a new heart. What I need is forgiveness from the one whom I've ultimately offended. And that's God. The sooner you humble yourself before God and acknowledge your sin, the better off you'll be. David doesn't only own it. He confesses it to God. There's a way for us to own our sin without repenting. It's boastful. It's proud. 
It seeks to elevate our authority above Scripture, but there's a way to do it. Yeah, I did that wrong. It's just who I am. It's who my family is. How much time do we waste arguing with God about whether or not we sinned in the first place? Am I the only person who's ever done this? I don't think so. David confesses. And he confesses in a way that says, God, this was completely wrong. I'm completely sinful and I need your help. I need your forgiveness. And when David confesses his sin, the most amazing thing happens. There's a completely different tone in verse 5 than verse 4. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer, and so I acknowledged my sin. And it ends with, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God's heavy hand is lifted off of him. And God's forgiveness is given. Not just just to David's sin, but to the waywardness of it. To the heart behind the sin. Us who are parents, we know the difference between that. Right? Okay, our kid did something really bad. And there's a reason they did it. It's the other parent's fault, right? You know, it's the genetics from the other side is why they, no. But we are concerned with correcting the heart. And God forgave the heart, not only the sin, but the heart behind the sin. Back when I was working on that first screen door, I had partway through the day called a friend of mine, Steve. And I said, Steve, Steve's Steve's the guy that everyone needs to own. Everyone needs to know. (laughs) You guys are about to vote on co-pastoring. That's hilarious. (laughs) Um, Steve's the kind of guy that everyone needs to know. Because Steve has like every tool imaginable and he knows how to use them. So I call Steve. Steve, here's what's going on. He goes, oh, yeah, I I know something to do about that. And I go, okay. And then I kept trying to do it on my own. And I kept trying, and I kept trying, and it got dark. And this is Orange City. There's, like, nothing to worry about there. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But it was frustrating. I was tired. I was making worse decisions. So I finally called Steve and said, can you come over? Steve came over, and within five minutes, the door handle was on. And you couldn't see holes where I had completely screwed it up. If you went to 515 Delaware Southwest right now to the front screen door, you wouldn't be able to tell how horribly I treated that door with a drill. And my only thought was, Boy, I wish I'd called Steve earlier. I wish I had just right away said, could you just come over and help me because I'm in over my head. 
my drill isn't capable to do what your Dremel set is because apparently a Dremel's intended for that kind of thing. You gotta learn it sometime. And I think of times in my life where I've tried to hide my sin from God or from others and I've tried to go on my own way. And by, when I finally come to the point of saying, God, I fully confess to you and I'll fully confess to anyone I need to who I've hurt along the way, And it's just an immediate release. Not because it's all over, but because my heart is in rightness with God. Because He forgives not only sin, but the waywardness of it. And that's our greatest need. I started by talking about how you get to a point in orienteering where you can look at a map and you can look up at the surroundings and you see the same exact thing. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a map that we can look at and we can see it in our lives and we can see it in the lives of those around us. And we can see the agony of, of waiting in sin and trying to run from God and the hurt that that causes us and others. If we confess our sin, He'll forgive us and He'll cleanse us. This is what David experienced. And this is why David starts with blessing. This is why he starts with the end result. Because he felt the agony of that sin and by the time he finally acknowledged it to God, the forgiveness was so great that he can't start with anything but saying, this is a blessing. And he's not... There's so many times in Psalms where he says, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessing to God. Here, he's saying the blessing is on the individual whose sin is gone. And David isn't saying this in a braggadocious way of look how great my life is. He's saying this as an invitation to us. Would you come and experience this blessing? Do you want to know how great it is to know that your sins are forgiven and that God looks at you and He removes the deceit from your heart? There's a blessing in this. Will you come? He's writing this partly to instruct us. And He starts with an invitation. David's in a lot of ways, inviting us to the communion table. There's a blessing in taking these elements and remembering what Jesus has done for us. That that Jesus died, His body was broken, and His blood was poured out. So that the sins you committed last night, yesterday, this morning, over the past week can be forgiven and not separate you from God. That your iniquity can be removed. That your sin can be forgiven. We appropriately talk about communion as being something we need to approach with reverence. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 11 that If we approach communion improperly with a sinful heart, 
that we, can, that we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. And so we, we tell people, when you, when you come to communion, when you come to the Lord's table as a believer, if there's sin that you're not dealing with, don't partake this time. Wait until the sin has been dealt with. But, I also want you to know that this is for sinners. I'm going to ask those who are going to be distributing the elements to come forward. And as you're coming forward, I found a poem about communion, about how it's for sinners. And I just want to read part of the poem for you. Take it. It's for sinners. Redeemed like you and me. Don't drown in shame and guilt, my friend. Turn, repent, be free. You look so closely at your sin right now, that's good, He wants you to. But do you see who's bearing it? Because it's Him, not you. You're not condemned, hated, judged, though thousand times you fail. He knows you struggle day by day, yet still His cross prevails. Forgiven, righteous, and secured, He calls you by these names. The price is paid, so good or bad, His love for you remains. So take this bread and take this cup, declaring Christ is Lord. See the tender sacrifice in the blood that poured. You're reconciled to God, my friend. Have joy and seek His face. Turn from your sin and worship Him in His rightful place. As you receive the elements, I ask you to hold on to them so we can take them together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that by Your love Your Son died on the cross. That Jesus' body was broken, His blood was poured out so that we could become the righteousness of God. We thank You that forgiveness is available and free. We thank you that you are a God of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.